Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. And we are back. Take it away. The Complete Solo Beatles podcast. As always, I'm Chris Mercer here with the great Paul Kaminsky. How are you doing, Paul? Hey, Chris. I'm doing well. I can't help but notice that you come here today with sadness in your eyes. Yeah, I have sadness in my eyes. The other day I had sadness in my text. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) It's been interesting following this George journey with you so far. And I was surprised, actually, Chris, when you brought up wanting to do the topic that we're going to cover today, primarily because the previous iteration of Take It Away with Ryan very rarely touched on live material from Paul's solo catalog. And so when you came to me and said, well, the next episode is obviously going to be the concert for Bangladesh, I thought, well, fantastic, (laughs) because I wasn't expecting you to say that, but I'm so happy you did. Well, yeah, I'm not known for being a big live record guy, and I think we packed most of the live stuff into one episode back on the original Take It Away. But this is really important in the George story, and this also gives me an excuse. I did mention I'm not a big live record guy. This gives me an excuse to fill a major gap in my solo Beatles knowledge, which I never really listened to the thing. You know, I've seen excerpts heard a few of the tracks, but I've never sat down and listened to it, much less watched the film. So look, it was just a glaring, embarrassing gap. And uh, it turns out it was well worth filling that gap. This was really fun. Oh, yeah. As live solo Beatle documents go, it's certainly up there with the best, maybe top three I put this on fairly regularly. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. I go through a tradition, actually, every New Year's. I watch live concerts all day on the TV. It's just a tradition that my parents used to do when I was a kid, and so I kind of got used to doing it myself. And so every New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, there's always a live concert playing on the TV throughout the day. And this one often makes its way on, and it's one that I don't really tune out for because there's so many interesting tidbits on it. Yeah. The other ones that come to mind are... uh, Paul McCartney's rock show, of course, especially with that Blu-ray release, which was phenomenal and just beautiful, beautiful quality. And I also love, I know some people, I've heard some people recently not talking too kindly about it, but I love the Get Back film, not the one we got with Peter Jackson, but the other one, which was chronicling the 89-90 world tour, uh, the McCartney 1989-1990 world tour, which of course was also directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg, funnily enough. So, I think those are my top three uh, concert, Beatles solo concert experiences, at least the ones that have been captured on film. So anyway, it's always nice to revisit this one. And tragically, it's only one of two solo George concert captures, let's call them, that have been released so far. Hopefully one day we'll get the Dark Horse tour. But so far, all we have are this and the um, Japan stuff. So It's really nice to have this. It's nice to have this as a document. It's fascinating to see the players at their various stages of life 
in this movie. Yeah, I mean, that was maybe the biggest takeaway for me, or the thing that made the biggest impression on me, was seeing, look, that's Bob fucking Dylan in 1971. He's just had the whole like reclusive period after the accident. Not long ago, he did Nashville Skyline and John Wesley Harding, and there he is. Also, when George first comes out at the beginning of the concert, I think it just hit me right then, like, whoa, this is a Beatle in 1971. (laughs) And certainly when Ringo joined him on stage, you realize these guys just recorded something. They just recorded these songs. You know, this is incredible. So, yeah, it really did make an, an impression on me just that we're watching these icons in their prime. Wow. Oh, yeah. In fact, I think that's in my notes somewhere, but it was like a year and a half after something, and here comes the sun. (laughs) It was not that long. I mean, think about it. It would be like us reminiscing back to mid-pandemic or something. (laughs) You know, it's just really... Well, hell, yeah. I mean, the pre-America days are not that long ago, you know. A decade ago, the Beatles were, (laughs) you know, still in England. They hadn't even come over. It wasn't even known here. So it really is uh, quite remarkable to see just major icons of the 60s doing stuff that's effectively brand new. Right. If you think of songs from four years ago, that's like big deal, right? That yeah, just right. happened, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And it's pretty cool to see them at the height of their rock star powers, too. I mean, in a perfect world, in the in the brighter timeline, the Beatles would have still been together at this point, and they still would have been this vital entity, just like the Stones were at that, at that moment in time. But, you know, unfortunately, they were split. And even still, they were at the height of their commercial viability. I mean, Ringo, you know, the song he performs at this thing, he ran right up the charts with George. George was probably the most monetarily successful Beatle in those post Beatle years, at least initially. And this just continues that because this was the follow-up in many ways to All Things Must Pass, even though it was never intended to be that, because All Things Must Pass was very, very late in 1970. And we're talking, this was very much developed in that first half into the second half of 71. So Mm -hmm. my sweet Lord, very fresh on people's minds, you know, still having singles plucked off that thing. Plus it was a double album. That's a lot for people to digest. Yeah. So this is kind of an addendum to that. And also an early clue to the new direction in some cases, uh, just by looking at the figures on the stage and knowing what roles they would be playing in Georgia's solo career moving forward. Right. So I thought I'd do something this time that, um, you used to do a lot in the former iteration of Take It Away, which we haven't really done up to this point too much, which was taking a look at where the other former Beatles are mm. during this specific moment in time in 1971. Mm-hmm. This was a moment of major activity in the world of the solo Beatles. And one of the biggest things that happened is within weeks of this performance, in fact, in the weeks during and in the run-up to this performance, Paul McCartney was assembling wings. Yes. So in those first, I don't know, couple weeks of July 1971, Paul had the idea, hey, let's put this band together. After the success of Ram, at the very least, you know, I mean, it was a chart topper. Mm -hmm. And maybe it didn't get the critical acclaim he wanted, but it was certainly a moneymaker and proved to Paul that despite 
McCartney being railed for being this underdone kind of experimenty thing, he could still churn out the Abbey Road level stuff. And so emboldened by that, he puts together a new group within days of the Bangladesh concert. So Denny Sywell, he invites Hugh McCracken to Wings, who declines, and Denny Lane, of course, and Linda and Paul. And what's really, really funny is the same day of the release of the single, Bangladesh, which we'll get to in a moment, is when they cut Mumbo in the studio. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which is really wild to think about. You know, it's things are starting to happen. The 70s are being defined in these moments. In this case, it reflects a bit badly on Paul. He's doing mumbo, for God's sake, you know, trying to figure (laughs) out what it's like to be in a band. And uh, here's George with this major, you know, statement and a kind of selfless expression, you know. And so also at this time, John and Yoko were fresh new residents, fresh new permanent residents to New York City. And that was a big, big move for them, which would result in John's own attempt at a similar style benefit concert a year later with the, um, the event that he did for Geraldo Rivera and uh, supporting the handicapped children. I forget what the organization was, but John and Yoko very much ensconced in the New York City scene at this point in time. And Ringo, as we mentioned, was running it don't come easy up the charts, which was a George Penn tune, of course, but Ringo was also flourishing in the film world and in fact left the set of Blind Man to come and participate in the concert for Bangladesh. Blind Man was the spaghetti western he was shooting out in Spain when George was putting together the concert for Bangladesh, and it wasn't even a question. It's so interesting to hear, but there was an interview with Ringo I was listening to today where he said, I put the film on hold. In fact, all production ceased so I could go and do this. There was never any question that I was going to do this. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. Great. It shows how tight those two were in those post-Beatle years, George and Ringo. Okay, so Imagine came out 9th of September, 1971. And then sometime in New York City the following summer in 72. So I guess John was working probably in the final stages of getting imagined together when this was going down. Yeah. The majority of it was recorded before he left for America at Tittenhurst. Mm -hmm. And that session or that series of sessions rather also included George Harrison, of course, on several tracks, Mm -hmm. including how do you sleep? (laughs) And um, that record was in the post production, I guess, what you call it phase or still being kind of uh, overdubbed and things because the saxophones for It's So Hard, I know, were recorded around this time in New York after they had already moved out. and mm-hmm. So, yeah, you get them definitely ensconced in that world. But George and John, still tight at this point in time. But it's very interesting, and we'll get to this when we talk about the show itself. This is when you start seeing those little fractures start appearing in places other than between Paul and the rest of the Beatles. Sure. Because John, George, and Ringo were the ones that stayed with Klein, and they were particularly chummy Yes, throughout those early breakup days against Paul. But it's around this time, and we'll get to it, where you start to see some cracks in that armor. And hmm. they start to really embrace being their own thing. The reality of what was happening had really and truly set in for them. It was starting to feel less like a fresh shock or will this be permanent or will this will 
you know, maybe this will just be a passing thing. And it started to become, no, 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 this is how it's going to be from now on. We are ex-Beatles. I guess we should start here where the project itself began, which is with Ravi Shankar. And this was actually, you know, part of the reason this concert for Bangladesh came about was because George and Ravi were working together on this movie and album project called Raga. So I'll touch a little bit on Ravi Shankar's rise to fame. In 1967, this director named Howard Worth began a documentary project centering on the music and fame of the acclaimed Indian musician Ravi Shankar. Uh, Because Worth began this project in 67, the film was able to chronicle the early friendship between Ravi and George, who by 1967 had become quite close to Ravi and championed his music throughout the Western world. Of course, we touched on this in the Beatle George episode, Love You Too and Within You Without You, things like that. But uh, what's really cool is in this film, you get some scenes of Ravi and George in 1968, because uh, this guy was following them around through all of these pivotal years. And it's White Album George. In fact, I think he's wearing the shirt that he's wearing in the the photographs that come in the White Album. <laughs> you know, those four, mm. fo- the four separate photographs. Right. Uh, he's actually wearing that shirt in the documentary. Oh. And I was like, oh, oh wow. White Album George. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Which is pretty far out. So scenes from Ravi's legendary performance at the Monterey Pop Festival were featured, as well as some very cool scenes, as I mentioned, with George in Northern California, when George was kind of training under Ravi in 68, learning the sitar. And so the title Raga comes from um, the title of what they call Western people, I guess you'd call it like a symphony. It's like an extended piece of music that is all sort of thematically linked and obviously has different sections and different instruments and things like that, but it is of a piece. It is of a a greater piece. And so this film equates Raga as a musical concept to Ravi Shankar's life as a whole. So Ravi is about... I don't know, about 20 years older than George. And so he, you know, he's not a young guy at, at that point in his life. And he had achieved quite a lot. In late 1970, George was treated to a test screening of the assembled footage for the documentary. And after trying and failing to find distribution under United Artists, which also distributed the Beatles' other films, Help and A Hard Day's Night, George was reportedly so taken with the footage that he offered to distribute the film himself under the Beatles' Apple Films umbrella, which is another early clue to the new direction. George seeing a movie he was so moved by that he offered to finance it and distribute it himself. (laughs) Right. He's developed quite a habit of doing that over the years. It's an expensive habit. It's an expensive habit. Yeah, but it's worth it. You know, I mean, in the case of Life of Brian, which we're talking about, it, it paid off monetarily. But in this case, yeah. it's a really beautiful document of this guy's life, Ravi Shankar's life. 
So with Apple's involvement, naturally, a soundtrack LP would accompany the film, which George offered to produce. This work would bring these two friends, Ravi and George, into a closer working relationship than they had ever been before as they headed into the early months of 1971. And of course, in the early months of 1971, we have the Bangladesh Liberation War. Now, Chris, I don't know how much you knew about this going into this episode, but I really knew nothing of the conflict in Bangladesh or basically anything about why they were trying to raise money other than it looked like people were starving. Refugee crisis, basically. People flooding into Bangladesh from East Pakistan. Okay, so East Pakistan, and this is, again, I'm going to sound like an idiot to people who actually know world history, but East Pakistan was on the other side of India from what we now know as Pakistan. Yeah, they just drew the lines like... (laughs) In very distant places, yeah. Yeah, they're like, there's not just India between the two, but Nepal as well. Yeah, so you get, that's right. You get India over here, and then and then East Pakistan, and basically, those are full of people who are culturally referred to as Bengal, of which Ravi Shankar is culturally a Bengal. Right. And they declared independence, saying, well, we're not connected to this other part of Pakistan at all, so we are going to be our own nation called Bangladesh. And Bangladesh means Bengal nation. So it's funny, when you hear it pronounced at the time, it's typically spoken as two words, Bangladesh. And that's like the way George says it in the song. It's saying Bengal nation. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost like uh, it, it's before the, the words kind of melded together when we started getting used to thinking of Bangladesh as its own country. What was happening was during this war to liberate itself, there was all of this refugee movement from Bangladesh into North India. In that process, not only were there all of these war atrocities and things like that happening, I'm doing a real Cliff Notes version of this, but not only was all the the usual madness associated with war happening, but there's this weather event called a cyclone, which hits the area and hits it with basically nonstop hurricane force winds is kind of what winds up happening. And half a million people die who are already displaced because of the war going on. And so what you have is this huge humanitarian crisis where all these people don't have access to clean water or to food, and they, they're not where their homes are. They're not with their people anymore. And so you have people starving in the streets. That's really really sad. I mean, it's, you know, a long time in the past. And honestly, when I hear Bangladesh, the first thing I think of is the concert from Bangladesh, which I think a lot of Western people do, but the actual tragedy that happened there is just appalling. And so you can imagine Ravi Shankar, a guy who like grew up in that culture and not far from there in India would be, you know, stricken. Like, what, what could we do? What could we do to help? You know? So, they're working on this Raga film and Ravi's talking to George and saying, oh my God, you know, this stuff is happening. And evidently they were having dinner at Tittenhurst Park, which George had moved into at that time, uh, not, you know, during the All Things Must Pass period. And I guess Klaus Vorman was there too because he was one of the witnesses to the early ideation of this project. But Ravi was basically saying, oh, you know, maybe, maybe I'll do a show and... You know, that we can generate it. He was thinking of generating, I think, $25,000 was what Ravi was thinking. And George said, well, what if I participate and throw the weight of all of my Western appeal behind it? 
And then the two got to talking. And the two got to thinking about it. And evidently, one thing led to another. And suddenly they were thinking, all right, well, what if we get all these other people involved too? And what if we don't just have a concert, but we could film it and record it? We could generate a lot more than $25,000. And that's where all of this came from. And it wouldn't have really happened, I don't think... Well, it's hard to say where, whether it would have happened or not, but it's because the two were working so closely on Raga at the time that this, these conversations were happening, which is one of the things when I was doing this research that I found so interesting, actually, because I never really thought of the connection between Raga and this charity project. So this is via Rolling Stone. Ravi was quoted as saying, I was in a very sad mood having read all this news. And I said, George, this is the situation. I know it doesn't concern you. I know you can't possibly identify. But while I talked to George, he was very deeply moved. And he said, yes, I think I'll be able to do something. And from there, they started kicking around names of who they were going to bring in on this. And what I found also kind of interesting is, this is still when Patty Boyd is in the picture. You know, she wouldn't go away for a little while now. And so she was also evidently involved in picking some of the names for the show as well, which I thought was kind of cool. So this was hardly the first benefit concert by a pop musician. In fact, George himself had participated in the Plastic Ono Band's UNICEF benefit concert at the Lyceum Ballroom in London, titled Peace for Christmas. Interesting to note, this was after John's, quote, divorce meeting, where he told the other Beatles, I want a divorce, and started giggling while Paul was crying, and John was, like, being extraordinarily cruel. But that was that meeting that kind of set into motion the actual demise of the Beatles. But it was prior to the Threedles, George, Paul, and Ringo, heading back into the studio in January 1970 to finish off the Let It Be soundtrack. So, it's just really interesting to see that George and John were still participating with each other, even in that interim post-divorce meeting. It's just so weird right? to think yeah. of that time. Anyway, the difference being this concert that George was planning, as opposed to the Peace for Christmas show, was planned to be much, much bigger. And they sought after the most storied, biggest venue, most popular venue in America, which at the time was Madison Square Garden. So the initial list of participants in the newly ideated benefit concert included Ringo, John Lennon, Eric Clapton, Leon Russell, Jim Keltner, Klaus Vorman, Billy Preston, and Badfinger. As a sidebar, Jim Keltner, who I listed in that initial rundown, would become a staple of the former Beatle world at this time, coming into George's orbit via the Delaney and Bonnie tour and staying there via his work with Joe Cocker and the Grease Band and the early 1971 work with John Lennon on Imagine. It's unclear, but I suspect that Keltner and Lennon likely came into contact in an, an appreciable sense during that Peace for Christmas benefit concert that I just mentioned, mm. because Delaney and Bonnie were at that one, too. Well, it's such a strange world
Leon Russell, another one of the names I mentioned, came into George's orbit through uh, the Ronnie Spector project that George was working on around this time, where George had given Ronnie a couple songs that he had written especially for her, but that she didn't quite take up all the way. The one that she wound up doing was Try Some, Buy Some, which would end up on Living in the Material World later, but he also offered her that track, You, which would show up later on Extra Texture, as sung by George. Leon Russell was a participant in those sessions and also worked with Badfinger while George was producing their album Straight Up. So Leon is kind of circling also in that orbit at this time. The initial list of attendees more or less signed up immediately, with George tasked with securing the additional star power of buddy Bob Dylan. And the date, this is a really wild addendum here, the date for the show which was August 1st, was chosen via an Indian astrologer. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Yeah. (laughs) I I saw that. I read about that. (laughs) Madison Square Garden was uh, available that day. So, yes. What a coincidence. They had a few options of of favorable days. Yes. And it turned out the venue was available. Yeah. Astrology plays such an absurdly huge role in former Beatle... (laughs) history it's insane yeah um because john and yoko lived and died by it as well but um anyway as with the peace for christmas concert or possibly because of it i don't know the proceeds of the bangladesh project were set to be distributed also through unicef so that's how the idea kind of came about and that's how the players were more or less assembled but in addition to the show and in addition to the planned filming and recording of the show, there was also a single that George wrote especially for the project, which he called simply Bangladesh. To accompany the show and to generate additional funds for the relief effort, George penned a track specifically highlighting the crisis and imploring people to help. The track was likely cut at the record plant West in early July 1971 during the production sessions for Raga, George, Jim Keltner, Leon Russell, Jim Horn, and Klaus Vorman were the lineup on the initial singles session, though some place both Ringo and Billy Preston either at the session or on subsequent overdubs, and Phil Spector would go on to co-produce the single as well. It's pretty much the band from the show. Pretty much the band from the show.
I love this song, Chris. I want to hear your take on it. Oh, I like it a lot. And it does have, you know, a minor key kind of gospel thing going on. And, you know, I was noting the differences between the single and the concert version. And I think I like the Phil Spectoriness of the single. He did co-produce, and you can hear it in the piano sound, for example. There's a kind of echoey quality to a lot of it. And I think it's an effective single. It goes on a bit long. I think it could probably stop at four or five minutes instead of going on to seven or whatever it is. But I actually really like it. The lyrics are... Well, the lyrics are straightforward. The lyrics are about the situation and about being asked to do the thing, right? about being asked to help. I think it's more musically interesting as a record than as a set of lyrics. But yeah, I'm down with this. And I like both versions, but maybe slight preference to the single. Same here. It's actually a favorite track of mine from George. I don't have the musical terminology to describe this, but it really kind of feels almost like a heartbeat to me. Like it climbs and falls and climbs and falls with this really regular kind of rhythm. And it's, in addition to that, an extremely funky heartbeat. It's got a lot of bounce to it, you know, which is part of the thing I like about Awaiting on You All and tracks like that from All Things Must Pass. Well, something I like about the song is that it's mostly in harmonic minor, meaning the five chord is major, which gives you this... I'm not, I wouldn't say gothic, a romantic, sort of classical romantic feeling, but it's a little edgier than a natural minor, which is like a blues minor. Yeah. Because that major chord as a five chord gives you a leading tone. So you get the note just below the, the tonic. So if, I don't know what key the song's in, but if you're in C minor, you're going to have a, a B in the five chord if it's harmonic minor rather than a B flat. And I think a lot of our listeners will get the gist of that. <laughs> kind of a dissonant leading note in the five chords. So it, yeah, it has a, a kind of a special sound. And you don't hear it that often in, in rock music. You hear natural minor or blues minor a lot more often. So I like that. There's also uh, some funky diminished chords here, which is always, <laughs> yeah. always a pleasure. And it, it kind of, it diverges a little bit from its gospel feel with those diminished chords. George's so-called naughty chords, right? That's right. Naughty chord. <laughs> ar- argumentative chords. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite part of it is when it does that dun, 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 that sort of rapid climb into the next part. It's That's the gospel I think you're talking about, where it feels like somebody pounding at a piano in a church or something. Yeah, right. But even just the repeating of Bangladesh, you know? Bangladesh, Bangladesh, the reaching quality, it kind of reminds me of a a preaching type gospel song that way. Yeah, Darker. It's so much darker, though, than a gospel song. And there's some interesting lines in it, too. I mean, the bit where he says, it may seem so far from where we all are, it's something we can't neglect. It's something I can't neglect. It's something interesting about him repeating it in that way, where he's kind of talking in general terms, hey, we all we all have to do this, but then he turns it around and actually makes it personal. We have to do this, but also I have to do this. So it comes across as not just a rallying cry, but also kind of a personal thing, which I think is kind of really a pretty way to go about it. Because it doesn't hide anything, you know? He doesn't right. pretend to be anything it isn't. Now, the song peaked at number 10 on Britain's National Singles Chart and number 23 on Billboard Hot 100 in America. So, modest hit in the United States, but the crowd sure went nuts when he came back out and did the encore of it. 
Yeah. What's so cool, as we were saying earlier about this concert, is that these guys are playing their recent hits. Like when Ringo comes out and plays It Don't Come Easy, this is his current hit. Right. And this too is a current <laughs> hit by George Harrison, you know? So it's, yeah, I think it, they're just reacting to the fact that it's the new George Harrison song, you know? Within a matter of days, because yeah. the single came out, I think, on the 28th, and the concert was on August 1st. <laughs> yeah. And yet the place does seem to re- you know recognize it. Yeah. But a new single by a Beatle was big news back then for a lot of music lovers. So It says in Wikipedia, sorry to be reading out of Wikipedia, but Bangladesh attracted sustained airplay in the days leading up to the concerts. So the audience had very much been primed for the song, and then he, he waits till the very end to play it. That's slick. That is slick. I'm sure, especially in the New York area. Yeah. You know, your WNEWs and the rise of FM at that time as well. Probably uh, were anxious to do it. Now, the flip on Bangladesh, Deep Blue, is one of my favorite George songs as well. I can't get enough of Deep Blue. I know (laughs) I tend to gravitate toward those kind of bluesy George tunes. You know, we talked about For You Blue and stuff. But what I love about Deep Blue is the, again, intensely personal lyrics Mm -hmm. where he's talking about watching a dying body full of sickness and it makes him feel helpless. I mean, he's talking about his mother. This song was written about his mother. uh, Yeah. Song was just died. Yeah. It was written about his mother's death. And so he does it with a little tongue in cheek Mm -hmm. and a little wink and nod because, you know, with something that intensely personal, there's probably a bit of comfort in doing it with a smile sort of. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, just a, a beautiful, self-reflective moment from George who is just again at the height of his powers musically I just absolutely love how he constructed this song I love this song as well. And sonically, you know, the arrangement, the production, I'm reminded, as you say, of For You Blue, maybe a little bit Old Brown Shoe. Yeah. But really, this is uh, harmonically a lot more sophisticated than either of those songs. If you listen to the main verse part, if you listen to the chords, it's sort of flipping back between a major one chord and a minor one chord. 
in a really funky way. And it is, that is kind of a blues thing to do, but it's a little more ambiguous. Usually this is really flipping back between a major third and a minor third at the bottom of the scale. So it's a really arresting set of chord changes there. Really great song. And the melody, the way the melody is constructed over those weird chords is also, again, it's really impressive and interesting. Yeah. This is one that I didn't know too well before doing the prep on this. It is, after all, the B-side of Bangladesh, you know, so (laughs) (laughs) hadn't come to my attention as much, but I've discovered a new favorite George song. Like, this is definitely something I I really enjoy. Yeah, there's notes of Sumi Suyu blues on here a little. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Perhaps this is the stop on the pathway to Sumi Suyu blues. Those kind of abrupt stop switch moments in it. Ding, ding. You know, that, uh, mm-hmm. and then boom, boom, it t- takes these kind of interesting, I see them as almost musical right angles. They're like hard stops yeah. and then going into a different place. And so that, that I like it. Yeah. is similar to me as Sumi Sui Blues. Yeah, I don't know. This has been a favorite of mine, you know, just growing up and hearing it around the house and stuff. George has a lot of great, unique B-sides in the early 70s. Just some really beautiful s- selections like we'll get to later and subsequent album releases, but a lot of them fly under the radar. You know, it occurs to me this is close to a a Now Hear This episode, because you're talking about growing up listening to these songs, and this is a gap that I'm filling. So thanks for taking me through this. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I'm just happy to talk Beatles at any time with anyone. Actually, it's, it's wonderful to discover you have a gap like this. Yeah, there's still stuff to learn, you know? There's still great music you haven't heard yet. I had that happen to me with Ryan. Ryan played me It's Not On, and I had never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was like, I what thought I knew fuck? every Paul McCartney song in the history of the world, and yet... <laughs> it's not right. on! It's not on! Oh, we were excited about that song. <laughs> I love that for song us too. So yeah. <laughs> but I digress. So... The only thing I wanted to mention before we move on to the finalizing of the lineup was this Joy Bangla EP, which was a George-produced Ravi Shankar-specific benefit record to accompany his own Western-oriented single and concert. This side of the project circles back to the whole East meets West of it all. And so, you know, no matter what language or what style of music people were buying into the Bangladesh tribute concert project preferred, you would have an option to purchase or have an option to give your money to support the charity effort, whether it be a Western pop song or whether it be this EP from Ravi Shankar. So I haven't really listened to this much. Chris, you took a listen to this one today. Is that right? Yeah, I checked it out today. I was surprised at how hard it was to find even on YouTube. It seems it hasn't been treated very well in terms of reissues. Yeah, it's very short. It's basically seven minutes per side. And it's pretty great. If you like the opening of the concert for Bangladesh with Ravi Shankar, you're going to like this maybe more because it's got singing and it's a little more straightforwardly melodic, at least on side one, the two short songs on side one. So, yeah, I'll play a little bit of it here. And I think it's pretty great.
Sorry for not using the names of the songs. I'm just not going to butcher the Indian. So track one, track two, or not going to uh, butcher that. Tracks one, two, and three. And track two is the one with the very haunting vocal and the sustained drone underneath it. Very cool. Yeah, I must admit, I don't really listen to Indian music with a lot of regularity. I mean, because of my Beatleness, it comes into my orbit fairly regularly, at the very least in snippets. But at these actual extended pieces of Indian music are somewhat foreign to me. And in the research for this episode, I listened to more extended pieces of Indian music than I think I ever have. And I really quite enjoy it, much in the same way I enjoy a classical symphony Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. like that, where as a kid, I may have been bored to tears, because as a kid, I was bored to tears by like, within you, without you. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Actually sitting down and appreciating it for what it is and kind of trying to get lost in the music a little bit is something that... I gained with classical music in my mid-20s. I kind of had this Mozart period and things like that. And so I I have an appreciation for that kind of music, or at the very least, non-pop music or non-rock music, although it's not something I return to terribly regularly. But I got to tell you, it was really nice, really relaxing, kind of, (laughs) um, to listen to this music uh, in the preparation for this episode. Sure. And I think, and we'll touch on this more when we get to the opening set, but I think if you've ever enjoyed, you know, a great guitarist shredding, which you have, yeah, I think it's not hard when you actually see them playing their instruments to get into it on that level. Like this is just such virtuosity, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't know that you have to love bluegrass to, really appreciate like the level of virtuosity when you see it live. True. So and classical music has that whole virtuoso thing as well. So just seeing a, a first violinist just kill it is really a rush. Yeah. When I saw a really, really good fiddle player live for the first time is when I really mm-hmm. clicked with bluegrass for the first time, as you've mentioned, oddly enough, because I'd never really dug that style of music either. And then yeah, when you go and see it performed really, really well, it's hard not to be enchanted by it. Absolutely. What was really funny is I was watching Raga uh, today, and, and my wife watched a little bit of it with me, and apparently she dated a um, a Sarad player hmm. <laughs> in college, and she was telling me all about this culture around uh, the you know Indian musicians in their early 20s and America and, and what that was like, and... It's, it's fun, funny, I'd never encountered a, someone who ever met a Sarad player before, let alone somebody I was 
<laughs> you know, contractually related to. So Interesting. Now, I met Robbie Shankar. Oh, tell me this it's story, please. Not much of a story. One of my teachers in grad school at UCSD, uh, Robbie Shankar was there because I, there was a concert. And UCSD was a pretty happening place in the 90s and early 2000s. And uh, my studio teacher, actually, like my electronic music teacher, Peter Otto, was showing Ravi around. And I ran into them in the hallway and Peter stopped me and said, hey, Chris, this is, I want you to meet Ravi Shankar. <laughs> and I was wow. really just kind of like, I don't know, um, so caught off guard. I knew he was going to be around, but I didn't think I was going to meet him. We had a brief conversation about how Western music is notated and Eastern huh. music is not and how that changes the way that people relate to the music. When it's notated, that gives you certain ways to innovate that are missing if you don't. <laughs> but then if you're relying on an oral tradition, you learn all these things deep down into your bones in a different way. We had this brief chat and moved on. But yes, I met Robbie Shankar. So you just... Uh you skipped right over the weather and went straight we went to straight Western music to, is notated. No, yeah. <laughs> the codification of Western music, as my teacher Peter Otto put it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a lovely conversation to have had with Robbie Shaker. Yeah. It's funny, when I was talking to my wife, she was saying something similar because we were watching Ravi prepare one of the ragas and he was doing so by saying that scale that they say, uh -huh. um, which is in those different words. And I think that's what you're talking about, right? The, the words that they use... Is almost like a language, right. which kind of substitutes the notes. So you could actually speak a song, I guess. And so I never really even noticed that. I mean, it's like sort of like the extension of the do re mi fa so thing. I think it's a lot like solfege. Yeah. yeah so I, I don't know. It's very fascinating. Wow, that's that's awesome, Chris. That's very yeah. cool. So before we move on, you mentioned to me that you had watched the Raga film. I was just wondering if you had more reflections on that. Very fascinating. Highly recommend it. There's a version of it on YouTube that you can watch right now for free. They actually re-released it in 2010. And so there's a version you can buy, but I didn't find it on Amazon or anything. You'd have to go to eBay and stuff. So I just, I just checked it out on YouTube. But fascinating documentary. It goes through Ravi's whole journey. And yeah, he's about 20 years older than George. And so he came up during the Depression, actually, and, well, in America. But at the time, he came from a wealthy family from India, and he was a dancer as a child. And he, as he describes it in the film, he used to, quote, dress like a dandy <laughs> and follow all the girls around. <laughs> Which is really, I love the idea of someone describing themselves as dressing like a dandy. It just makes me so, so happy. But at a certain point in his life, he found himself at a crossroads and found his guru, his teacher, the guy who taught him the sitar, and he dedicated his life to it. And he would sit in a room with this guy for weeks, months, years at a time, learning one raga and learning it really, really well, just doing it over and over and over again. And in the film... He actually goes back and visits this guy. And this is 1968, 67, we're talking here. And the guy was almost 100 years old. <laughs> so good, clean, healthy living in the 60s with this fella, I suppose, because he was around during the U.S. Civil War, I guess. Really fascinating to see where he came from because, you know, he wasn't from poverty. He was from wealth. And he chose to throw away a lot of those trappings and dedicate his whole life to the traditions of India, 
that he felt young people were abandoning with, I think he called it, gross indifference. Ah. And he seems to say that, he seems to acknowledge that it's inevitable that young people don't always maintain these traditions. Mm -hmm. But he is definitely sad about it. And I think that that's one of the things I would suspect helped bond him and George. Because when you read I Me Mine, a lot of George's rhetoric is get off my lawn rhetoric. It's the kids today. They're not saying anything, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think Ravi has a little bit of that too. Yeah. And both have intense respect for their instrument. And it's cool because in the film you see George in 68 and he's wearing the shirt that he's wearing in those white album portraits. And it's 1968 white album George sitting there. And yet, even though George is playing the sitar, it's almost disingenuous because at that time George had realized that he is not going to dedicate his whole life to the sitar. He can't do what Ravi did. And that's around that time where Ravi says, find your roots. What are your roots? And George says, well, I think it, I think my roots are Elvis. <laughs> and so George doubles down on the guitar. You know? A very fascinating film. Some really hard-to-watch scenes of intense poverty in India right. at that time. Dead bodies in the streets sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But fascinating, and the music in it is just absolutely captivating. Really, really interesting stuff. So hmm. highly recommend Raga. Right. Okay, yeah. I think I will follow up on that myself. Seems like now's the moment, you know? I'm feeling a little soft now's the moment. <laughs> when it comes to the Indian music. <laughs> so getting back to the show here, as I mentioned... The initial lineup was kind of set pretty early in the ideation process here, but additional musicians joined the event, including George twisting the arms of both Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton to join the event. And Clapton's pledge to attend was actually considered a gamble at best because he was struggling with severe heroin addiction at the time. So I have a quote from Pete Bennett, who was the concert promoter for Concert for Bangladesh. He was associated with Alan Klein, actually, and they got into all kinds of tax trouble together later. But in any case, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Alan Klein got into tax yeah. trouble? What? Well, actually, Pete Bennett ended up being a witness against Klein because he was in some trouble of his own. But in any case, here's Pete Bennett talking about the Clapton situation. Dylan and Ringo were both there, but Eric Clapton was not. He had not yet come into town, and nobody knew where he was. We finally found him the next day at the Park Lane Hotel. It was time to go to the afternoon show, but he was spaced out in his hotel room. He was very sick. He had taken an overdose of pills or something. There was a doctor in the room with Clapton's girlfriend, and they were trying to bring him around. Hey, we have a concert here, I said, starting to pull Clapton out of bed, but nicely. He was spaced out, like a zombie. But luckily, we got him into the car into Madison Square Garden, where he was on cloud nine <laughs> through the whole concert for Bangladesh. <laughs> now, oh my God. I want to keep going. This is from uh, the book Dark Horse by Giuliano. You'll recall that Giuliano wrote a book called Blackbird about Paul McCartney yeah. that was full. It was such a just, you know, dish in the dirt kind of book. Yeah. Hit job. Yeah. Um, but anyway, here, here we go with some more interesting stuff about kind of leading up to the moment of the show. So this is Giuliano's quote. Uh, not Pete Bennett, but we'll get some Pete Bennett as we get going here. As the mammoth crowd slowly began making their way into the sold-out arena on August 1st, Harrison was backstage in his dressing room, still wondering if Bob was going to turn up. 
Harrison, this is uh, Pete Bennett. Harrison was all over me to make sure Bob was going to play. On his way through the busy backstage bustle, Pete stopped dead in his tracks when he heard the faint echoing sounds of someone playing the harmonica in the men's room. Slowly inching open the door, he saw Dylan leaning in a corner against the cool tile walls, playing for a very select audience of one. Bob, said Pete, the show's starting. What the hell are you doing in the bathroom for crying out loud? I like it in here, replied Bob, pausing only momentarily from his zealous assault on his trusty harp. How's how's George doing, Pete? Fine, fine. What do you mean you like it in here? It's a stinking toilet, Bob. You got to get out there on stage, man. Maybe the people won't like me anymore, Pete, pouted Dylan, surprisingly insecure. Bob, shit, Bob, screamed, (laughs) screamed Bennett, throwing up his arms in amazement. They'll love you, man. Everybody's waiting to see you. Yeah, see me fuck it up, you mean. Look, Bob, what about George? He's your friend, isn't he? Do it for him, said Pete, unloading his big guns on the uncertain singer. On second thought, fuck that, do it for yourself. They got him on stage. (laughs) Good. He was really having a hard time. He was really having a hard time getting on stage. I think it had been something like four years since he had played certainly something of this scale. Yeah, well... He played the Isle of Wight Festival, I know, but that was 69, so that was at least two years two prior. Two years, and, you know, as yeah. far as really being up there on a big stage by himself, this is, you know, he had the accident in 67, right? Right. So very little, let's just say very little live performance since 67. Yeah. yeah. Well, the only reason I remember the Isle of Wight thing is that was the last social gathering between more than two Beatles in the breakup period, I mean, that's before the uh, divorce meeting, but John, George, and Ringo, with all three of their wives, attended that show to see Bob. And it's interesting that at some point after the show, they had all talked about, oh, they would go up there and play with him, but Bob never invited them to do it. <laughs> so we could have at that Isla White Festival had John, George, and Ringo and Bob. But Bob just didn't do it. We'll come to Bob later. I will say Eric seems pretty subdued throughout the show. (laughs) I, you know, I think I liked him better on heroin. He should really try that again. (laughs) Yeah. He seems to not say much um, when he's on heroin. So Eric, if you're listening, Clapper, you might want to just go for it. You know, you're near an 80. Why not? Yeah. Hell yeah. If it'll help you stop talking, maybe. (laughs) But Clapper was great. He's always great uh, at the guitar. According to some, John Lennon initially agreed to take part in the show without Yoko. That was George's stipulation, evidently. And John was an early sign-on, as it turned out, we think, to the show. But Yoko objected to this no-Yoko policy, apparently, and that complicated Lennon's ability to commit. And ultimately, he did not show up to the event. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, he would hold his own charity concert at Madison Square Garden a year later. Now, this is the first crack, as I mentioned, in the John and George camaraderie there, because once again, John doesn't show for George. Mm-hmm. And that is a tradition that has been up to that point quite a consistent thing yeah. and would remain, by the way, a consistent thing. And those two would have a kind of a rocky time throughout the l- most of the rest of Lennon's natural life. Yeah. 
now, do, do I think that this was necessarily the most momentous moment in that? No, not really. But it's certainly a hint at what things were going to be like between those two. So why the anti-Yoko on stage policy? It seems like they could have let her on stage, but just agreed she wasn't going to do the do the crazy vocal stuff, you know? Like, couldn't she just sing background vocals with John? I never know what to believe with this type of stuff. As opposed to like whether this was a, an actual policy or whether this was an ask on George's part or what, I don't really know. I mean, George and Yoko were not necessarily the friendliest of people. In fact, the Yoko situation was a big sticking point for George, who was very grumpy that Yoko would eat his digestive biscuits in the studio. <laughs> And <laughs> that is part of the reason for the walkout, as the two evidently almost came to, or came to, depending on who you believe, blows mm. during the get back sessions. Not George and Yoko, but George right. and John about, about Yoko's Yoko. interference there. And of course, there's the whole bad vibes thing. Dylan said that she has bad vibes stuff. So who knows? Not long after this, when George is promoting Raga on a talk show, he does this joke where the talk show host says that Yoko had sat on that very chair the year prior, and George goes, ah, and gets up as a joke. <laughs> oh, that's you know, Dick so. Cavett. Yeah. Dick yeah. Cavett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as far as the other former Beatles go, Ringo, as I mentioned, was <laughs> he was there, baby. He hopped on a plane, paused production on his own movie to do it, <laughs> and it was never going to be a question. Ringo was going to come and help his buddy. And McCartney's the interesting thing, because he was apparently asked, but declined to attend as it would give Alan Klein a Beatles reunion to his name in the very public eye that it would have been in. So I could see that being a very valid objection from Paul's point of view. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that within days of the concert for Bangladesh, Paul was being sued by Northern Songs and McLenn Music for the song Another Day, which... Linda got co-write credit on as McCartney's like sort of loophole to unfreeze certain money that was being tied up in receivership from the whole Beatles lawsuit, which was still very much ongoing at this time. So not only were the McCartney's very not keen on giving Alan Klein a victory, they were actively being sued yeah. <laughs> at that yeah. time by Northern Songs and McLenn. And Linda was heavily pregnant. Yeah. I mean, she was about to pop with Stella at the time, too. I mean, I think of the summer of 71 as a pretty ramshackle time for Macca, where he's kind of reeling from the poor reception of Ram, and he's still depressed about the Beatles, and he's starting Wings, but it's kind of rough going at first. Wings Wildlife released after this was, you know, not well-received, to say the least. And so I just think it's a bit of a raw, insecure time for him maybe doesn't really quite, like Dylan, doesn't feel quite up to being on this thing, maybe. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, especially with all those people who were all still pissed at McCartney. Oh, yeah, it sounds awkward. When he was being blamed for the breakup yeah. by everyone. I don't know, not to plug another podcast that has nothing to do with ours, but there's a great podcast, Beatle podcast, called Another Kind of Mind, which really goes out of its way to detail the interpersonal relationship through the years with Lennon and McCartney. And the reason I bring that up is they're doing a spotlight on this particular time period right now on their show, and it's just really tough on both ends of things. And the, the lack of communication there between those two guys really caused a lot of problems. Mm. <laughs> so anyway... I don't think there was any way McCartney was going to get up on that stage. You know, there was just no I way. I can't see it. 
I mean, he was all, also asked a year later to join Lennon on stage for the one-to-one concert. So anyway. Another really funny tidbit here I learned in this research. So Stephen Stills, the poor S in CSNY, <laughs> he was playing the garden the day prior to the concert for Bangladesh and gave George the ability to use his set, stage, sound, and lighting. So all of that stuff was baked into the show already because they just didn't take it down from the night before. But Stephen was apparently disgruntled to have never been publicly thanked by George, nor invited to perform on that night. (laughs) And I I guess he got drunk in Ringo's dressing room and started barking at people all evening, which is really, really (laughs) funny to me. (laughs) The show was announced via a small advert in the back of the New York Times, and tickets sold out immediately, so they added an extra show, which is, uh, I'm sure, must have felt great for George, you know, because he especially at that time you hear the press conference where he's talking and he talks about how nervous he is and same thing with dylan you know are they still gonna like me kind of stuff and they do they like you george (laughs) they really really like you yeah they'd like me to fuck it up (laughs) (laughs) and that brings us to the show chris Let's talk about this concert here. First up, we have the aforementioned Ravi Shankar with an Indian section. Love it. Had a great time. We have Shankar, we have Ustad Ali Akbar Khan, and we have Ustad Ala Raka. And on Tambura in the back, we have Kamala Chakaravarti. This is the this is the DVD <laughs> booklet that has does actually list all the performers. Well, I did my best there. The woman in the back, that's Tambora. She's a little bit like a backdrop. She's like laying a kind of a background. Yeah. And then the tabla player is the rhythm instrument, and then the sarad and sitar, obviously played by uh, Akbar and Ravi Shankar, respectively, are the main melodic instruments. Yeah, and Allah Akbar Khan, I think, is the other one who is featured on that Joy Bangla EP. And Ala Raka, the tabla player, is Ravi's regular tabla player, who is featured heavily in Raga as well. And this guy cracks me up because he looks, I think I described him as Indian Joe English. <laughs> he's like really animated and smiley, and he's moving all around, and he's having a good time. I love know? how much he's 
admiring the two string players in the front. Like he's like really excited by what they're playing, you know, and looking back and forth like, yeah, oh yeah, now you're on it. Like, (laughs) yeah, for sure. And that that's echoed in my own reaction to the thing. Like you were saying earlier, the, the mastery of what these people are able to do is something you can sense, even if you don't really have the firmest grasp of the music uh, conceptually, you know, Mm -hmm. it's still, an amazing physical feat to watch be performed. And there's a bit where Ravi and the Sarad player, Ali Akbar Khan, are doing this like lick trade thing where they're going back and forth, which is obviously not, I would assume not improvised, but it looks like they're kind of playing call and response, what we would call like guitar Mm -hmm. licks or something like that, but they're doing it with their respective instruments. And it's really cool because they look like they're having fun and that's not really the first thing I associate with Indian music. You know, George himself calls it more serious yeah. at the top of yeah, the show. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's remarkable. The the back and forth you're talking about, look, they are having fun, you know. They're kind of throwing it at each other. And what do you got to that, you know? So there's a little, I think, um, friendly competition happening there between them, as there is in the trading guitar licks, you know, type culture. But they seem to be working really hard and having a lot of fun. So when you listen to this music, what what do you what's missing for you conceptually? Um, where are you kind of because you can kind of hear the the scale, right? You can hear that this is it's not a major scale, it's not a natural minor scale, it's some other kind of scale, and you get a feel for that, and then you see that there's a kind of a gestural language, like a motivic language, you know, where there are these little fragments that they're kind of varying, right? Sure. I'm not always clear on the large scale form. But I think it's a little like jazz where there's a head and a bunch of jamming, you know, the head returns at the end. Except I think there are places along the way that are like heads where they're playing together again and they kind of know the tune. Well, I don't know how much is jamming and how much is pre-planned, though. I mean, a good bit is jamming within, you know, like just as jazz musicians, they have a kind of rhythmic language and a melodic language, but they can do whatever within that. And what they do with that's going to have to do with what they played, what they chose as a head. So if they're doing a Cole Porter song or something, you know, well, they've got the melody of that Cole Porter song that they played together at the beginning in a kind of structured way. Now they're going to kind of riff on the melody, on the content of the head. So I don't think my ear is particularly attuned to that just in general. So I find it hard to track the beginning, middle, and end of the Indian songs, for me, they kind of start and then at a certain point stop. There is not a predictability in terms of a crescendo or anything like mm. that, at least to my ear. I, I, I struggle to kind of find that three-act structure or something yeah. like that, that sort of storytelling inherent to Western music, which is uh, to be expected because it's not Western music. So that's what I mean by like conceptually, I'm not always sure the music kind of happens to me and then it stops happening I to see. me. Like, that's kind of how I come about it. Not that I don't like it, of course. It's just um, I find it a little hard to predict in that I way. I realize it's a type of Indian classical music, but it really has more in common with with Western jazz than it does Western classical music. Which I also Western like. classical music is just 100% notated music. We are playing yeah. exactly what's on the page. That's what the performers specialize in. Classical performers are the people who can play what's on the page. And they're not doing that. They're playing parts that I think are preconceived, but like a head right. in jazz. But I, I, I think they're playing a lot that's 
just fully improvised. I mean, if that's the case, that's awesome. I, I wasn't sure how much was improvised and what wasn't just because they talk a lot about discipline mm-hmm. and they talk a lot about um, getting things a certain way. Right. So I wasn't sure if they were actually improvising or whether or not this was a predetermined kind of thing. They certainly give the impression they're improvising when they're doing the back and forth thing, but I wasn't actually sure if I was watching that or not, just because I wasn't sure if that was something that was kind of predetermined about the song, they would go in those particular areas. But again, that's just because I'm not familiar with the overall thinking behind the music generally. Well, I don't understand it all either. I mean, I don't know in great detail, but I think it is largely improvised. It's just that there are a lot of rules that apply to the improvisations. I don't know how they sit cross-legged that long. I got to tell you, my leg would be asleep in three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that was, can I tell you, that was the first thing I thought of. I was like, I hope their legs aren't asleep. That would be so distracting for me up there. <laughs> but that Sarad player, Ali Akbar Khan, he goes absolutely nuts on a solo at one point. And I'm like, clapped and eat your heart out. Like, he comes more alive. That Ali Akbar Khan, this guy who looks like he's your middle school science teacher, goes more crazy on a solo in this Indian section than Eric ever does in the show Right, itself. right. It's pretty... Well, Eric, we now know, is maybe a little bit somewhere else, but... <laughs> yeah. He's got those bell-bottom blues, but uh, yeah, no, it's fascinating to watch. I really, as you said to me when we were talking about this over text or whatever, I really got into it. I really got into this portion of the show. Yeah, very enjoyable, yeah. And it's really funny when they're all tuning their instruments and then the people clap because they don't know if it's music or <laughs> tuning or something. And Ravi's like, well, if you like the tuning so yeah, much. Yeah, that's right. It's a, <laughs> hopefully you'll like the music too. Here's a little something from Wikipedia. This is a heavy Wikipedia episode here, but I do want to share this. Each raga provides the musician with a musical framework within which to improvise. Improvisation by the musician involves creating sequences of notes allowed by the raga in keeping with the rules specific to the raga. So that's what that's the thing. It's highly constrained improvisation. I see. Well, I don't have too much more to say about it, honestly, other than I really did get into it. And whenever these Indian sections happen at me in these kinds of settings, I do find myself enjoying them. If I'm not seeking them out, I'm at the very least enjoying them when they happen to me. And uh, in the same way, I enjoyed Ravi and Anushka Shankar's set at the concert for George. You know, it's another case where it's a beautiful set. And did I understand it? Maybe not to the extent that some people do, but I still was able to enjoy it. Fantastic.
So that brings us to George. What an opener. Yeah. Wawa. So it gives us this trio of songs from All Things Must Pass. And the first thing I want to say about the trio of songs is what a great job they did overall of reproducing the sound of the album. Without it being just a, an imitation, they bring some new stuff to it, but they get the grandeur. They get that like orchestral rock band feeling with the two drummers and all of Badfinger on acoustic guitar and all of that. Yeah, it's what's lacking from some of the performances in that 74 tour, which I know I keep mentioning, but it's not long after the songs were actually recorded, so maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe fresh in their minds, because a lot of those performers were also performers on All Things Must Pass. But yeah, I really, really love the opening set here. And by the way, there were, as I mentioned, two performances, and on that afternoon performance, they made slight set adjustments, one of them being Bumping My Sweet Lord up to the second song, as opposed to... I think the second to last song Mm. in the afternoon performance. So what we're seeing on the concert film, which is kind of what I used to structure how we were going to talk about this today. I didn't really go into detail on some of the other songs that don't appear in the film. It's a hodgepodge, a little bit of both shows. So you kind of get a little bit of both. And I don't know why he chose Wawa to kick off the show. It's not a single or anything like that, but God bless him for doing it, because what an electrifying opener. I mean, it's just badass and (laughs) funky, and what a kick-in-the-door thing. Yeah. It's funny, I remember thinking George looked so old here when I used to watch this as a kid, but under that beard, he's like a child. Like, when you look at, when you're really looking at him, and not, you know, he's, I think we had mentioned 27, 28, whatever, at the time but he still looks like a beetle. I mean, it's basically his revolver haircut. Yeah. Except a little longer, and he's got this scraggly beard thing going on. But he is not an old man at all. (laughs) It's just... Yeah, well, it's really great to see the band come in with such a blast. And I think George sounds good here, too. Oh, his voice is in great form. I think the whole show. Now, there's an interesting thing I was going to share from the Simon Lang on that topic. Yeah. I think we agree that George is sounding good starting on Wawa. But Simon Lang has this interesting take on it. He says, the recordings actually reveal a George Harrison who is adjusting to his new status as a superstar in his own right. Hence, his nervous renditions of Wawa and My Sweet Lord eventually give way to confidence with a moody take of beware of darkness so he's sort of suggesting that george isn't fully comfortable until beware of darkness that's not what i'm hearing same i mean he did the afternoon concert you know he's warmed up (laughs) (laughs) i think he looks confident as hell during wawa i would agree with him 100 percent during my sweet lord but we'll get to that in a moment Mm. i think wawa that's maybe the best that song's ever sounded. I mean, it sounds like the real rock and roll song it deserves to be. And, you know, a couple other things on the general setup of this show, besides the fact that Eric Clapton looks like he's about to fall asleep the whole time. I think Ringo looked at this and structured the all-star band kind of after this, because if you look at Ringo's all-star bands, there's always two drummers. Mm. It's a great sound. It does give you that big sound. I mean, it also allows Ringo to, it allows Ringo to step off the kit. But most times when Ringo performs live, if not all times, more or less, Ringo is playing with another drummer live. Mm. 
I don't know, maybe it's his own lack of confidence or something. But when you think about it, it's like the all-star band, there's always another drummer there. When he plays with Paul, there's always Abe. You know, when he plays here, there's Jim Keltner Mm -hmm. by his side. And he doesn't really do all that many live shows before the all-star band kicks up. It's very rare when Ringo's out there by himself. And I can't help but think that that's maybe a confidence thing. I don't have too much more to say about Wawa other than I love this one. And also I wanted to remark on George's look here. Like that white suit is awesome. It's just iconic. I don't know who dressed him for this thing, but they did a fantastic job. And that awesome white strat with the cream color pick guard also is a really, really cool, just general look for George up there. And I never really put two and two together, but when I was a kid, and my dad was making a bunch of money in the 90s riding the tech bubble. I got two electric guitars over the course of the 90s. And the first one was a white Strat with a cream color pick guard, although it was an imitation Strat. It wasn't an actual Strat. And I also got a Gibson SG, which I realize now are both George guitars. And I think my dad did that purposefully. <laughs> <laughs> Neat. <laughs> That's cool. I just thought that that was, that was kind of an interesting um, aside there. And I'm in awe of how cool George looks up there. And it's really funny when you notice him playing. I don't know if I wrote this on a different song or not, but you know, in old Beatle concert footage, you see George do that little like wobbly knee dance thing Uh where his knees kind of stay put, but then his legs kind of kick off to the Uh side. You know what I'm talking (laughs) about? He does that very briefly during this show. And it was like, Oh, it's Beatle George. (laughs) There he is. My Sweet Lord. The one thing I'll say about this in its favor is that the background vocals actually sound gospel. So it's got that. But otherwise, it feels a little meandery. Yeah, I didn't write much on here other than the fact that it feels completely dead to me. Mm. It almost feels like there's no song there. I think we were talking about, or I had mentioned, I love the sound of breaking glass in one of our previous episodes where... Nick Lowe doesn't perform that song live anymore because he mainly does solo acoustic gigs and he's afraid if he plays it, people will find out it's not really a song. It's just kind of a collection of catchy things. I don't think that's the case here necessarily, but the song sounds so flimsy. 
And maybe that's just this take on it or something, but... Well, maybe My Sweet Lord is more of a record than we think. Like, it's mainly a record. It's not such a deep song, really. Because it just mainly seems like he's singing the same line over and over again, which he is. But it really becomes obvious. (laughs) No, I think they captured a moment on the album that's, yeah, Yeah. maybe gone by the time we get to this, you know. You don't need love in Well, Awaiting on You All, on the other hand, has got some energy. Picks back up again. Yes. Yeah. Now, he does have that hilarious flub on the lyric. Right. (laughs) Which he he takes in his stride. Yeah. He has a flub on another one later, doesn't he? Ringo does. Oh, on something. On something he has a flub. Oh, that's right. And Ringo does. Yeah. It's loose out there, man. It's loose. (laughs) But this is another one where I think they did a remarkable job of, like, really bringing the all things must pass energy to the stage yeah this one came across really funky to me and he didn't flub my favorite line which is the pope owns 51 percent of general yep. motors he remembered that one. Oh, he was eager to deliver that <laughs> one i'm sure yeah. <laughs> yeah but he goes uh you don't need no and then he forgets and then he goes and you don't need no yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh. Oh, you don't need a rosary beads or them books you read to see that you fall. That's right. That's right. But it's good. And the Jim Horn horns sound good. Yeah. The Jim Horns. Is that what they're called? Uh, the ho- Hollywood Horns or something, I think. Hollywood yeah. Horns. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why he chose this, but I'm so happy he did. Because it wasn't a single and it's not a particularly memorable track. I mean, why he picked this and not what is life or something is kind of baffling to me, but... That's a good point, but I, th- I you think about Wawa and Awaiting on You All, they're both high energy. Yeah, yeah. But this one's really a mouthful in the lyrics. Like, it's no wonder you forgot one. It is. There's a lot of lyrics <laughs> on this. <laughs> That's right. I'm glad he picked it because, and we talked about this during the All Things Must Pass episode, but I, I'll take this song anytime, <laughs> to quote George. Yeah. I love it so much. It's a favorite of mine, and it's so funky, especially with Billy up there, you know. Speaking of which, I, you know... George takes a break while Billy Preston <laughs> kills it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so Billy plays That's the Way God Planned It, which was a single at the time from his album of the same name, unreleased on the Apple label. And I don't generally even like this song a whole lot, but Billy sells this thing and a half up there on that stage. It was a revelation to me because, I don't know, do you know this album? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, so I don't really know that much Billy Preston. I just know him as the the guy who can play a mean keyboard and shows up and cheers up the Beatles during <laughs> the terrible get back thing, right? That's mostly what I know about him. I actually didn't know he was this incredible singer and incredible stage presence. Because that's what we're reacting to. You say you don't like the song that much, and I don't know, you you know, someone else singing this song I might not care much, but him as a showman. Yeah. 
Holy cow. The guy can really sing, by the yeah. way. Like, like these other guys kind of sound like fogies, you know, <laughs> compared to the guy who can like sing, yeah. you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, Clapton looks like Lurch over in the corner. <laughs> Why can't we be umber? Like the good Lord said, He promised to exalt us, but low is the way. How men be so greedy. So much left. All things God given, and they all have been blessed. That's the way God planned it. That's the way God wants it to be. Aging. That's the way God planned it. That's the way God wants it to be. Not your heart be troubled Let morning sobbing cease Learn how to help one another And live in perfect peace If we all just be humble Like the good Lord said He promised to exalt us So Billy, I saw him perform this song in a very intimate setting. I saw him perform this at Beetlefest in 2005, a matter of months mm. before he died. It was not very long before he died, and oh wow, I, we we were really close because Beetlefest is just in a hotel. So I mean, we, my dad and I, were pretty darn close to see Billy perform this and some other things, and it was really special. We got to meet him and. Um, get autographs and shake his hand get a picture with him there's a cool picture i have actually i'm looking at right now of me and my dad and billy um from that beetle fest and also i had seen him perform with the all-star band where he did some of his other hits like circles and stuff but yeah he, uh, this is optimum billy because this is what a year and a half after get back he's really young here and he's wearing that cool as a cucumber outfit he's got that whatever he's like a beret kind of thing and yeah. Uh, it's almost like a Black Panther kind of get up. It's like leather and all this stuff. And he just looks so freaking cool. He just looks so cool. And then the spirit moves him and he gets up and start <laughs> yeah. and does like a James Brown thing. <laughs> and now Billy also joins George on that Dark Horse tour. I think he does the same kind of thing during that tour. And there's some wonderful photos of George dancing with him, you know, during that. Oh, wow. Which is really cool. But here's another area where I think Ringo was taking notes for the All-Star Band because George... Does a couple tunes, hands it off to the next guy. That's what Ringo does. Ringo does a couple tunes and gives it to the next guy. So it's kind of interesting to see Ringo model his whole touring career after this show, basically. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at this first kind of half of the show here, all the way through while my guitar gently weeps. And it's really George and Friends for that. I don't know, like Billy Preston plays on a Beatles album. And there's some Beatles songs here, George songs here, a Ringo song that George wrote. And then, you know, Ravi Shankar starting the show out. It's at that point that he hands things over, you know, to, uh, which we'll get to, to Leon Russell for a bit. 
But yeah, it, this is very really tightly programmed, this first set. This is really yeah. good. So we go from that amazing performance into it, Don't Come Easy. I just loved it. It's like, like I said earlier, it's Ringo playing his recent hit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he sounds good too. He sings well. He has a flub, but he sings well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I always love seeing somebody, you know, sing and play drums at the same time, especially Karen Carpenter. That's an amazing yeah. thing to behold. But that's a fun thing when the drummer can actually really deliver a good vocal while playing. I love it. Uh, yeah, I love when he flubs too, because he looks over at Jim Keltner and starts cracking up laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, well, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> now, it's, this is Ringo in fine fine form i mean he looks like such a rock star up there i mean there's that great footage as they're walking up to the stage where ringo's walking out and he's got the cool hair and the beard now ringo's hair and fashion sense isn't always my let's call it my taste Uh but in here this ringo is i think my favorite look for him yeah he looks good yeah he's got the long hair and the beard the beard's not too long it's just kind of rock star length he's got that slick black suit and he looks like a damn rock star you know he looks like he's got in there and owned the room which he did you know it's funny i mentioned that derek taylor interview where derek's talking about the former beatles and he's talking about you know george proved his point john's got some good stuff in there and you know paul hasn't quite gotten his hit yet and then he goes And then Ringo just has this way of taking songs and running them right up the charts. And people forget, Ringo was maybe the second most successful former Beatle in the early 70s. Right up Mm -hmm. to 74, 75, that dude was blowing Lennon and McCartney, certainly, out of the water. I mean, Ringo's Ringo album, first of Mm. all, was... Band on the Run and My Love, those are pretty big. Sure, I guess. I mean, maybe not out of the water, but... Certainly with the, with the Don't Come Easy and Photograph and um, even Back Off Boogaloo, like those songs were massive hits. Yeah. Yeah. I like those albums too. Yeah. Really, really good stuff. So I love seeing Ringo up there and especially hearing him sing this song, like you said, in its contemporary time, because I'm used to hearing that now. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen the All-Star Band more times than I can count. I, I don't even actually know how many times it's been because it was just like a, it was like thanksgiving dinner for me as a kid like it was just every year we'd go to see the new ringo show but it's really interesting to see him in the 70s you know when he's really still in this shit and still very vital and very relevant and very popular Yeah, the audience goes nuts when the song starts, too. You can tell it's been on the radio. Well, it's also two Beatles playing together up there. That's right. So that brings us to another All Things Must Pass cut, Beware of Darkness. Now, I think I like this track more here than I do on the record itself. I just really, really love the way they executed this. There's a bit where George and Leon trade verses that is just really, really cool and I think elevates the song. Interesting, because to me, Leon's a, of course, great singer, but he sounds wrong on this track. 
I think of this as a stately, elegant track and not as a bluesy thing. <laughs> and it's kind of, <laughs> Leon kind of turns it into a bluesy thing, you know. In fact, this version generally swings a little bit, not literally maybe, but there's a little, little funk in it that I just, it's at odds with how I think of the song from the album version. That's very serious. It's a really serious song on the album. I get what you're saying. There's a point where Leon goes, beware of Maya. And he says it like, yeah. like an old country <laughs> man. And he's like, well. Yeah. Watch out for Maya. Maya. <laughs> that doesn't really work. Coming out of the swamp for you. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, I mean, he's impressive as hell. And this is our first little glimpse of him, really. Absolutely. I'm not deeply familiar with his work. I've gotten some referrals now, right? I'm going to go and follow up on Billy Preston, who I clearly need to know more about. And although I've listened to some Leon Russell, I probably ought to dig in. It seems like a pretty talented guy. Watch out now to a pale Thought you shuffle That brings us to our first Beatle cut of the night, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Yeah, and this is obviously mainly notable for the trading licks between George and Eric here. The only place that I really felt Clapton kind of came alive. interesting that Clapton uses this thin sound almost as if he's just plugged in direct like there's no effect on his instrument at all yeah is it an oversight or is it super ballsy uh, like because there's no like wall of distortion to hide behind there's no sustained you can't do any of that he's just like it's like he's playing the, his guitar in his bedroom or something let's go ahead and assume he forgot to flip a switch or something <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling something was up this is what it sounds like when you just plug your guitar in straight into the mix. Listen, we're know? lucky Clapper was holding a guitar at all and not like a rubber chicken or a broom or something. We are. Even so, he plays very well. He does, yeah. I mean, muscle memory will, will do some wonders. But yeah, the, I mean, he played on the <laughs> he played on the record itself. So he definitely was uh, familiar with the tune, which was only released like two and a half years before this, which is crazy to think about. And George sounds really good in the Trading Licks section here. And George does have an effect on his guitar. Yeah. <laughs> he sounds like he's there to play a solo, you know. But, yeah. but I think he's great. And improvisation is not usually George's forte. Right. But I think he does a really great job here. 
I think the fact that While My Guitar Gently Weeps kind of picked up this FM following, this sort of cult following, meant something to George. Yeah. Because it did. And he references it more than once in the 70s and even creates a companion song for it in the 70s, which we'll get to when we get to Extra Texture. So this song obviously holds a, a warm place in George's heart. Delaney Bramlett makes this comment about George Harrison's playing. He's not a speed demon, but makes up for that with taste. Hey! Anyone can learn to play fast, and it's pretty good for show. But when you hear something, you realize you're hearing something beautiful. Aw. Yeah. We moving on to the medley? Yeah, let's move on to the Leon Russell medley. <laughs> the Leon Russell medley. Jumping Jack Flash into Young Blood, and then back again. Some different musicians come out for this song. Yes. Who appear, I believe, only on these songs. Sort of his backing guys. Mm -hmm. One of them is Don Preston, and the other is Carl Radel. Yeah, I was kind of confused who that guy was before I realized it was Don Preston, or not realized, but looked up who it was. I really like it, because I quite like that song. It's one of my favorite Stone songs, so I'm, I'm happy to get it, but... There is a bridge section that he uses to link this and Youngblood, where he does this kind of preachery bayou thing. And <laughs> it's interesting because Billy is accentuating it with these little keyboard tickles, which is really cool, actually, and kind of leads to the whole spiritual kind of sound of the whole thing. But they go into this guttural Youngblood, which is <laughs> really awesome. It's been a long, cold, lonely 
faces Little darling, it seems like years since it's been here Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I see It's alright Now we come to one of the highlights of the concert Here Comes the Sun with just George and Pete Ham from Badfinger, from the Apple band Badfinger, <laughs> on stage. Pete Ham is one of my favorite musicians ever. I am such a Badfinger fan. Me too. I love Badfinger. We're going to have to talk about them a bit, huh? Yeah. When we get to, you know, George's producing and stuff. Badfinger is such a rock and roll tragedy that it's often easy to get wrapped up in the tragedy of it all. Yeah. It's too of the people committed suicide and they, you know, they never achieved the heights. I feel that they should have achieved. But those first two albums are masterpieces. God straight up is amazing. And you know, no dice, holy shit, no dice. And even magic Christian music, the soundtrack album that they sort of debuted on, not as the Ivies, but as Badfinger is okay. Like, obviously, Come and Get mm-hmm. It is a classic because that's a McCartney song. But yeah, dude, Badfinger and their whole power pop aesthetic is just so endlessly captivating to me. I had the, the greatest hits CD and I just spun that thing to death when I was a kid. And so, yeah, it's really cool to see them up there and it's really cool to see Pete Ham. Not ever try and steal that show. He's just up there and he plays moment for moment. He's keeping up with George. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's remarkable. And, you know, there's not even a smile about him almost. He's, he smiles a little at the end, but he is there to support that song. You know, he's not there for anything else. He's under a lot of pressure, too, because he's pretty much doubling George's part. And it's an intricate part. And if either of them makes a mistake, it's going to be really obvious. So he's probably <laughs> really deep in concentration on yeah. this, you know? Yeah. But they, they totally nail it. It's really a beautiful sound. I think this is maybe the best live version of Here Comes the Sun ever. I mean, I really love the version that George and Paul Simon do later in the 70s, mm-hmm. but this one is remarkable. And George's voice just sounds so damn pretty on this thing. Yeah, it sounds great. Yeah. yeah. Really nice. And only, again, a year and a half since the song came out. <laughs> It's a hard, 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 it's a h
And here comes Bob Dylan. A friend to us all. A friend to no one. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know me. And now... Why do you think you know me? And now the man lurking in Elton John's bushes. (laughs) (laughs) So I was really stunned when he does A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Yeah. As his first number and his first performance in a while. Because, dude, that's a lot of words. Mm -hmm. Talk about a mouthful of words. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's a kind of virtuosity in having such an amazing memory. It's one thing to write these songs and get them down in the studio, like Desolation Row. (laughs) But to actually play that live and remember it is, that's like a theatrical feat of memorization. I remember thinking that, actually, upon this watch specifically. I was thinking, huh, (laughs) boy, he's really, yeah, he's got all these, doesn't he? But as a kid, again, not to keep going back to this, but when I just had this CD, this is one of my first dips into Dylan was hearing these songs for the first time, and especially the song we'll get to later, Just Like a Woman. I have a very clear memory of being on my high school school bus with this in my disc man and hearing that song and really, I don't know, connecting to a Dylan song for the first time in any appreciable way in my life. And uh, it's because of his participation in the <laughs> concert for Bangladesh that I really decided to give him an earnest chance. I mean, it was this and then desire were, were the things that wound up hooking me on him. But yeah, just a, a, a wonderful performance all around. And I love Leon on bass and George on accompanying guitar. <laughs> it's just really nice. So Leon kind of got talked into it. He just, like Dylan just kind of roped him in and said, we'll have Leon on bass. <laughs> so Bob Dylan's notoriously hard to follow if you're one of his accompanying musicians, because he'll just drop beats just in the moment Mm. and change things up. And so you listen throughout this Dylan set, you hear Leon gain confidence on the bass because on this song, a, he can't quite follow Dylan. So he's playing some kind of wrong notes, not egregious wrong notes, but kind of staying on a note too long or whatever, but also he's barely hitting the strings. He doesn't sound like a bassist giving it a good plunk. He's kind of like, boom, boom, wait, wait, which note is it? You know, but, but by the end he's, he's in there. Like he plays really well on just like a woman. Yeah. So yeah, I think he was a little stunned to be in this position basically. But. <laughs> Look, he's part of a three-part harmony with Bob Dylan and George I know, Harrison. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I would have been dumbstruck, you know? I can feel the pee falling down Pete Ham's leg just being up there with George. And yet, you know, Leon kind of holds his own um, in these in the, this moment of these gods, you know? And Dylan looks like a damn rock star. Like, he looks yeah. real cool up there. And you know, the three of them sound pretty good together. I, I, we wouldn't think those three voices would necessarily mesh, but they do. Yeah. When I ride on the train, baby, came by a thrill. I've been up all night, baby, leaning on the windowsill. If I die on top of the Dylan played a few variations on the two performances. On one of them, he actually busted out Mr. Tambourine Man, but that didn't make its way into the actual recorded, filmed performance of the album. Although I do have the bootlegs of that. 
It's on the the reissue of the album, yeah. Right, you're right, you're right, yes. Not, I guess, on the original LP. Uh, He does play a song that has one of my favorite titles of all time. It takes a lot to laugh, it takes a train to cry. Okay, Um, (laughs) sure. It's a really good title. (laughs) How many roads must a man walk down Blowing in the wind, it surprised me at first, but then I realized, well, this is like, this is a cause, right? Kind of makes sense, you know, there's a war going on there, refugees. Kind of does make some sense to do this early protest song. And you get those little Chet Atkins, George riffs that he used to do in the Beatles. Yeah. Which is nice. Paul told him, shut up, stop doing it on on Hey Jude. (laughs) Don't don't do that. I tell you, every time I hear this song, I think of Homer Simpson saying, I think it's like 12 or 7 or something, but when the opening goes, how many roads must a man go down before they call him a man? Homer goes, seven! (laughs) (laughs) That is wonderful. Nobody Just like a woman for me is the highlight of this, and you get that really pretty three-part harmony. And what do you think about the four-four on "Just Like a Woman"? Because that's six-eight on "Blonde on Blonde." It's a one, two, three, two, three, three, one, two, three, two, two, three on the album, and this is like a jangly four-four. It kind of caught me off guard. I didn't know what song they were doing until he started singing. I mean, it sounds really, I guess, bluesier or I don't know, more rock and roll. It has like an intensity and a focus quality on the album, Blonde on Blonde, but here it's a bit laid back, and yeah, it's a bit bluesier. It's kind of cool. It's kind of rock and rolly. Less folky, more rock and rolly. Dylan puts this emphasis on the G in girl when he's Uh singing that line, and it's such a nasty G. It's such a nasty girl. Like, you'd like, you know, she tastes, she bakes, whatever, just like a woman, but she... Breaks just like a little girl, and it's just yeah. really nasty, <laughs> nasty song. And but I mean, you could take it as tender, I suppose, you know, in that sort of 
coming of agey kind of way, but it does sound like it's it's a spiteful G. <laughs> yeah, it comes off a little more tender on Blonde on Blonde here. It does sound a little contemptuous. Yeah, yeah it's funny. Blonde on Blonde, this classic album, I just never connected with Blonde on Blonde. I oh, yeah. prefer Blood on the Tracks any day to Blonde on Blonde. And I, well, that's a different era. You know, I would say compare like to like. I mean, maybe you like Highway 61 more than Blonde on Blonde, or you like Bring It All Back Home. My Dylan preferences are very, very early Dylan, and then mid-70s Dylan. Well, it's funny because I was looking at this era, 71, Bob Dylan, what was he up to? Because I was thinking, I don't really can't really think of many albums from that period. And there is kind of a weird gap where Columbia is put, like, kind of dickishly putting out subpar outtakes and stuff. Planet Waves is kind of a comeback album. Yeah. And it's one that I never paid any attention to. So as much as I love Blood on the Tracks and Desire and know them from way back, Planet Waves is kind of a gap. Another gap to deal with here. So I started listening to Planet Waves over the last few weeks. Fantastic. That was one I found in my my mid-20s. And so I was living on my own for the first time. I don't even remember how I found it, but I heard Tough Mama for the first time and I went, mm-hmm. ooh, <laughs> damn, <laughs> that's a badass song, Tough Mama. Yeah, it's right after Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid which I do know that album, but it's mostly incidental music for the movie. But that's where Knocking on Heaven's Door comes from. Well, the Dylan set is kind of long, actually. In fact, I think he plays almost as many tracks as George does. But after that, we get the showstopper. We get the big finale with something. About that. three Beatles songs performed during the show and one of the finest live versions of the song ever conducted as far as I'm concerned. I I love this one. I also really love the Concert for George version with Paul and, and Eric and all that. That one is, is really beautiful too, but again, this is not long after it was released. So you're really getting George as he sounded on the record. It was just released. Yeah. That's what's amazing here. Something something so huge just released and it's yeah it's george playing again his recent hit yeah, with another <laughs> you know? with another great improv guitar solo or not maybe not improv guitar solo but it's slightly different than the record anyway and he's in the zone all around here yeah. right now his voice is a little shot on this track i have to say hmm. he's a little scratchy voice during the high parts you can take it as soulful but he sounds tired i didn't really detect that now, have you heard the recordings of him singing this on the Dark Horse tour? <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I, I have not, but I can only assume. He also changes all the lyrics. If there's something in the way, remove it, is what he changes the lyrics to. Yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to 
getting into the Dark Horse tour. How bad was it? <laughs> I, I don't know. I quite like some of it. But anyway, this is a great version. And you mentioned the lyric flub earlier. I, I love it when he has that little flub and then he looks back and giggles at Ringo. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Not crazy about Billy Preston's organ on this one. Mm. A little too active and a little too gospely. I wish he'd lay back a little bit. But anyway, this is a wonderful, wonderful rendition and something that uh, George wound up changing to be the showstopper instead of My Sweet Lord, which he moved up in the set for the evening performance. But then we have the walk off stage and then the encore Bangladesh. talked about the song earlier already i think it's cool as i said earlier that the audience really reacts to this of course they're partly reacting to an encore but still the audience seems to really really dig it and this does clock in about two minutes shorter than the single version the horn section on this is really stunning and again yes again we get the all-star band thing george leaves while the band's still playing ringo does that with the all-star band (laughs) (laughs) So I can't help but think Ringo just based the whole thing off this. Not to keep coming back to that, but I just thought it was kind of interesting. And George does this sort of awkward two-hand bye, like, wave thing before he meanders off stage. And George, you did it, buddy. You did it. You pulled it off, man. There you go. And that's the concert for Bangladesh. For those who don't have the DVD, you might be interested to know that The DVD does include the rehearsal version of If Not For You, which I'm disappointed wasn't on the concert. That seems like an obvious thing to have on. Yes. It also includes an afternoon show version of Love Minus Zero, No Limit by Bob Dylan. So some Dylan there that uh, didn't get included here. There's also a soundcheck version of Come On In My Kitchen, Leon Russell. So those are all worth checking out if you have the DVD. Pretty great. Yeah, the Come On In My Kitchen... At least the one from rehearsal in the studio is cool because it gets a little trade-off vocal between George and Leon, which is interesting to mm-hmm. hear those two trade vocals there. Also, Hear Me Lord was performed and not released, to my knowledge, on either the um, album or the DVD. 
So I would have been interested to hear Hear Me Lord. The footage must be out there somewhere. I don't know. This album was finally released in uh, December of that year in 1971, and it wound up winning the Grammy for Album of the Year in 1973, which is awesome. Well, it's interesting because when I was at that Grammy Museum, and they have this cool timeline where they show you from the inception onward who won Album of the Year every year. And you go through and there's this period where Stevie Wonder wins like every year for like seven years. (laughs) (laughs) And the concert for Bangladesh stuck out like a sore thumb because I was like, what? That? Really? That's wild. No, it won that. And it was an international bestseller. It hit the number one spot in the UK album charts, number two on the Billboard Top LP charts in the US, number one on the US Record World album chart number two on the U.S. Cashbox Top 100 albums and charted top 10 around the world, number three in Australia, number two in Canada, number one in Deutschland, I guess, Uh, number two in Japan, number one in Norway, five in Spain. So it was just an international smash. And one of the things George Harrison's solo career was ultimately defined by, when he died, This was mentioned probably not long after the Beatles in those retrospectives, because he, in a lot of ways, on this stage, in this way, set the template for the kinds of tribute concerts that would follow in the late 70s and 80s, particularly things like Live Aid and things like that. Not to say he was the first to do a charity concert, but the first to do one at this scale with these kinds of stars on this platform. George deserves a lot of credit for that. He could have put out a follow-up to All Things Must Pass. He could have been focused more on his own career, but instead he did this selfless thing, which wound up going down in in history as being this beautiful gift to the world. That's really kind of nice, actually, that George's Mm -hmm. career had this trajectory, and, and it would be another year and a half after this concert before we got another album out of George. But uh, worth the wait, and boy, <laughs> as accomplishments go in the post-Beatles world, they don't really get much bigger than this, I don't think, uh, just as big symbolic statements at the very least. And that's about all I have here on the concert for Bangladesh. I don't have anything in the way of press except to mention that Robert Christgau gave it a B-. minus. <laughs> he gave the starving refugees a D, but he gave the album itself... Yeah. No, he mentions in his review that you could just send your check directly to them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, this was a blast. I'm really glad we did it. The album we're going to do next is an album I'm really excited about. I think it's an overlooked gem. Maybe not that overlooked, but people don't talk about it much. So I'm really excited to get into that one. Maybe we go out today with a little preview of the next episode. Let's do it. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We hope you had a good time going through this concert. And if you haven't, check it out. The The concert is, I think, streaming on all, you know, you can buy it on Amazon, things like that. They put out a great re-release recently, and it's well worth your time just uh, for the the entertainment value and also the historical value. So, Just the rock history. Yeah, a lot of rock history on stage. There. Yeah. All right, everybody, burn your incense. We'll see you next time. Chris, I can't wait to talk about living in the material world. It's going to be great. <laughs>